0: Good song, uh, tying directly in with uh, today's message. So as you're finding your way over to uh, Matthew chapter 5, am I on? Y'all hearing this? Uh, okay, all right, good. Matthew chapter 5, as, uh, as that song was being sung, I could not help but think about um, my pastor years ago sharing with me that a conversation he had with his dad before he went home to be with the Lord. Now they're both with the Lord together. But uh, Charlie uh, was brought up in a certain kind of Christianity. Let me just say it that way, all right? Certain kind of churches, preached a certain way, lots of truth, uh, lots of fervency, and maybe a little bit extra, all right? Maybe a little bit more than than what the Bible always had, uh, some strictness, brought up in some strictness. And uh, Charlie got to really studying the Word, and it was really coming more and more alive to him, and he had a conversation with his dad, Dr. Russell Rice, and Charlie said, Dad, he said, unless I'm really mistaken, because he's learning more and more, he says, God is like way more merciful than we've ever given him credit for. (laughs) And Dr. Rice said, Chaz, I'm depending on it. I'm depending on it. I hope you've come to that realization that God is way more merciful than we've ever given him credit. If we had a clue to what it takes for that song to come out of the book of Lamentations, great is your faithfulness. You have brand new mercies every day. We all need brand new mercies of God for today. If you would join me, Matthew chapter 5. I want to jump right into our text Uh, We are in the fifth beatitude, of course, each week. Uh, I didn't plan on taking one a week. I'm assuming that's what's going to happen. That's just the way it seems to be heading. That's okay. But I like to review each time. So there's these crowds of people. Christ goes up on some type of mountain, a hill. His disciples come to him. And I believe the crowds are going to hear what he's teaching his disciples. And he starts off of the Sermon on the Mount with... Eight qualities that are not how we become a Christian, but eight qualities of a Christian. Though I will propose that the first two are part of becoming a Christian. And then three, four, five, six, seven, eight flow out of our our new relationship with the Lord. And so look at verse number three. We'll read down to verse seven today. Jesus pronounces a blessing. He says, blessed to his disciples. If you were sitting there today, he would have told you this: Blessed are the poor. In spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. They'll be comforted. He promises. Third, blessed are the meek. These are not the weak. These are those who still have an agenda. They still have have a will of their own. They still have their own mission, but it's been brought under the mission of the Lord. They are submissive to him. His mission outranks theirs. Because of the first two beatitudes, blessed are the meek. Why are they blessed? They're getting run over. No, they're not. Jesus promises they shall inherit the earth. The one we looked at two weeks ago before Brian Waters was with us last week, blessed, Jesus says, are those who hunger and thirst, but very specifically for righteousness. Why? They shall be satisfied. They're blessed because they shall be satisfied. And in today's text, blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall receive mercy. Keep this going in your head over and over. Today I'm going to try to project three applications of that, three even interpretations of that, and then let the Lord apply to you as as he would. Blessed are the merciful. That's the blessed people. Why? For they shall receive mercy, implying that others will not receive mercy. The merciful will receive mercy. Mercy. And so I've thought of this and we've covered, I'm not gonna re-preach the first sermon, but what he means by the blessed people, these are the fortunate, these are the approved, these are the people who are in the happy place, though they may not always feel like they're in the happy place, they are really, we could boil it down and say, These people have the good life. And so I want I want us to have the good life. I want to have the good life. I want the good life. Do you want the good life? Here's what the Lord says. The people who have the good life are the merciful. And I think by implication, the unmerciful forfeit the good life. The merciful have the good life. The unmerciful, you're forfeiting the good life. So we want to be merciful. What does this mean? By a brief introduction, I'll do a little more introductory going back over these thoughts when we hit our second point because they actually fit better there. But would you look with your eyes? Hopefully, I have you the text in front of you. It's still on the screen. Look at verse number three, because so far we've had four. Today is our fifth beatitude, and there's something I need to bring out before I launch into my points today, because they set up for them. And why are they these points? Notice something very unique about the first one. Verse three: Blessed are the poor. But it's not just any poor. It's not like financially poor people. It's poor in spirit. These are people who, when they look at themselves and evaluate themselves and come before God, their honest heart's attitude is, God, I don't have any resources. I have abject poverty. I am absolutely bankrupt when it comes to spiritual resources. I can't bring one thing that's going to earn any favor with you. If you've never been there, you're not a Christian. You have to come to a point where, God, I don't have anything. I need Jesus' righteousness. I don't have any. And that realization then leads us into mourning. But notice the first one again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's spiritual poverty. Look down, if you would, to verse number 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And there's no fancy meaning there. It just means these people are like starving for something, but Jesus qualifies it. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. These people honestly think, I have to have righteousness or I'm going to die. I need Christ. To to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for Christ. I need more of God. And so that's what they're craving. It's very specific. Meekness has its own definition. But today, the reason I'm doing this is because the second beatitude and today's fifth beatitude have something in common. And so I want you to look back at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Unqualified. Poor in spirit. Hungry for righteousness more uh, meek has its own definition blessed are they that mourn for what he doesn't say and so i ended up preaching three points that i felt and i gave scripture for each one of those and we kind of built as we went through that message verse 7 is like the second beatitude so the fifth one is like the second one in that as we look at it this morning blessed are the merciful they'll receive mercy And so if you were in my shoes this week and studying this passage, you would probably come to a conclusion. Okay, Jesus doesn't qualify the kind of mercy that he's talking about. What kind of merciful person is he he talking about? What is he calling us? What is he saying? What kind of person is is the blessed person that that really is in the good place of life? And so today, I'm going to throw out to you three kinds of merciful people that I believe the Lord is calling us to. And though it's not in the text. And I believe Jesus intentionally leaves these two open-ended because there's multiple applications to them. And so, by way of foundation, what is the merciful person like? All three. You're going to see it very easily in the first one. But I want you to remember, as we go to the second and the third, it's always the same thing. The merciful person has love in them toward the object of their mercy, so much love that they have compassion on them, they take pity on them, and they want to help them. And so that really flows into the first one that's probably the most obvious, right? Number one, first thought I want to share with you this morning. What is this merciful talking about? Mercy, number one, seeks to lessen the burdens of others. So Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. What are the merciful people? Merciful people, by their nature, or by a gift from God, they see people hurting, and they can't just watch people hurting and struggling. That really, they're sensitive to it, and so they want to do something about that. They want to help lessen the load of that person. They're struggling, and you it's not like you just have normal struggles. You're going through something that is more than most people. I think I can help with that, and the merciful person jumps into their life to help them. I think that's what Christ is talking to us about. And so it's this. The merciful person is sensitive to the hurting. They spot them. They notice some things that a lot of other people don't notice. But it's more than being sensitive to it. They want to do something about it. You have a long quote, probably as long as we've ever put on one of your handouts. I'm going to say it quickly, and then it will pop up on the screen, and then we'll think about it just for a moment because I know some of you are going to have a conniption fit if you don't get all of those words in those blanks. And so let me say it first, kind of hear it, and then we'll pop it up there, and then we'll leave it up there a little bit because we'll quickly in a moment go to another passage of Scripture. But notice a quote from MacArthur. It's a good one, and it's, it's not complete. It's a sample. Notice what MacArthur writes. Mercy is meeting people's needs. Right, I'm sympathetic. No, mercy is meeting people's needs. It's not simply feeling compassion, but showing compassion. Not only sympathizing, but giving a helping hand. And then he gives five sample categories, not exhaustive. Mercy is giving food to the hungry. Not just like acknowledging their hunger and wishing they weren't hungry. Mercy is giving food to the hungry. Comfort to the bereaved. That person's going through a hard time. That person has a loss. That person is sorrowing. The merciful person jumps into their life. So comfort to the bereaved. Love to the rejected. Forgiveness to the offender. Companionship to the lonely. Now we'll have that up and we'll start filling those blanks. Look at it again. Mercy is not just sensitive to the suffering people. Mercy is meeting people's needs. Do you have that? Is there any part of you has that? In a, minute, in a minute, we'll point out some of you have that in abundance. Others of us need to grow in this beatitude. The merciful person, mercy is meeting people's needs, not simply feeling compassion. A lot of us would say, I feel compassion toward that person. Mercy is showing compassion. Notice the next line. Not only sympathizing, but giving a helping hand. Sympathy, by, its, by the two parts of the word meaning there, means together, together. I see that you're in that, but together I can help lessen the load. I can't take it all off of you, but I want to do something about that. And then it notices five categories that he offers. Mercy is giving food to the hungry. I have food. You don't. I'm going to give you some food. Comfort to the bereaved. You know what? I, I see this. I see this in our people. I hear about it. Someone's bereaving. Someone's going through a difficult time. Someone gets some really bad news from a doctor. A lot of people may privately pray, but some people start taking an action toward that person. That's the merciful person. We all may say, oh, I have some compassion. And prayer is awesome, and that is an action step. But others go beyond even prayer. How can I help alleviate this? Love to the rejected. Forgiveness to the offender. Companionship to the lonely. These are the kind of people that frequent nursing homes. Not because they're in there, and it's not even maybe a loved one. It's just someone they know that their days are spent in loneliness. And they have the time. And I'm going to use my time, and I'm going to go to that person. If you would, flip over to Romans hold your spot obviously we'll be back here we're springing from here all morning but not all morning but for this sermon we got VBS tonight so don't want to hold you late today Romans chapter 12 and as you're turning there here's something that I'm learning more and more a pastor another pastor of mine not that many years ago was in Hong Kong or China while he was over there his knee blew out on him he jumped up and his knee blew out And he ended up being in a foreign hospital where he doesn't speak the language. And he was there for days and days waiting on his flight to come back to the United States. And I remember what he told us. He said that changed his whole approach to how he visits hospitals. He said he realized because he was in it that people are hurting all around. Guys, listen to me. All around you, people are hurting You say, right, well, as soon as we go out of here, we're going to encounter hurting people. No, they're within five feet of you right now. They're smiling. They smiled when they walked in, and they'll smile when they walk out, and they're going to shake your hand, and they're going to try. And and, and many of them have a joy, but they are really hurting. Hurting people are all around you all the time. And some of you are going, no one knows exactly what's going on in my life. You're the hurting person. But know that there's other people. We're all hurting to some, some extent. I'm learning this more and more. And so look at what Romans chapter 12. The only reason I'm turning to Romans 12 is because I believe what this says. Paul says that we are like your body. Your body has a lot of parts. And we're like a body with a lot of different parts. And each part has a different function. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, then take verse 6 as it stated. Having gifts. He's talking about spiritual gifts. What is yours? As I read this list, What is your primary spiritual gift? You say, I have that. I think I have that. This isn't bragging. This is God's decision. Verse number 6 makes it clear it was God's decision. Having gifts that differ. So we have different gifts among our group here. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. You didn't stand in line to get the gift you have. God decided, I'm going to give that person that spiritual gift. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift, at least one. And you may have a blend of several. Verse 6 again. Having gifts. If you say, oh, I don't have any spiritual gift, you're calling God and Paul a liar in verse number 6 because he says having gifts. Now let's move on. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, it's his decision, let us use them. If prophecy, This isn't always predictive prophecy. It's speaking forth the word of God. It's receiving a word. It could be for a person. It could be for a group of people. It could be for one audience at one setting. It could be studying the word of God and able to declare and to preach. If prophecy, remember here's the key phrase. It's repeated over and over, implied. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us use them in proportion to our faith. If your gift is service, then use your gift of service in our serving. If your gift is teaching, then use the gift of of teaching in your teaching. If you have the gift of exhortation, which is usually one-on-one exhorting people, then use the gift of exhortation in your exhortation. Use the gift. The one who contributes. God's blessed you. You're able to contribute and be a giver. Here's the qualifier. Do it with generosity. No strings attached. No like, hey, I, I give the most or I'm one of the biggest givers. I have the most say. Don't you never have that attitude. Just give in generosity knowing that the Lord blessed you. The one who leads, that's your gift. You're able to lead and, and administrate and, and mobilize people. The one who leads, do it with zeal, right? We're in your boat, so have some zeal to it. But notice this one. The one who does acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. So any of those things in that quote from MacArthur that the Lord leads you to do, do it with cheerfulness, uplifting, don't commiserate with people in their sorrow, you're jumping into their sorrow with them with an attitude of joy and hope and and God's got this under control and let him use you to lift them up. Here's the thing. Some of you this morning, because this passage is true, have the gift of mercy. You have it in abundance. Here's what I want to say to you. Keep doing what you're doing. God sees all things. He knows what you're doing when no one, and I know some of the things. I saw one of our members Friday. And I said, hey, I thought of you this morning. He didn't know why I was thinking of him. I said, it's a good thing. And the reason I thought of him is because I know of something that he does on a regular basis to this point. He sees burdens. He sees some sorrow. And he jumps into that. And I literally, like on Thursday, was thinking of him in this point. But others of you, you have that gift. Please don't stop. No one may ever see you, but God sees it. That person may never pay you back, but God sees it. And God says... You will receive mercy. You will receive mercy. Now, here's the thing. Some have it more than others. It is not my primary spiritual gift, but would you go quickly, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, two verses there. I just want you to see that even those of us that do not have mercy as our primary spiritual gift, God is still calling us to lessen the burdens of others. 1 John chapter 3, look at verse number 17. John, the last remaining apostle, the apostle whom the Lord loved, he, he referred to himself as, as an old man writing to Christians, he says in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods. So just means you have resources. It could be money. It could be other things. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, this is a Christian brother. They're carrying a load. They're burdened. If you see your brother in need, you have the world's goods, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? And so I've actually come to points in my life where I have to ask myself, Jeff, where's the love of Christ in your life if you're not actually using the resources you have to help that person do more than feel sympathetic toward them? Help them. Little children, let us not love in word or talk. What he's saying is don't only love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth be merciful. Praise the Lord for those of you that have this as a spiritual gift. But all of us need to just reach out and it may not be money, it may be something else. You may say, I have time. I can ride with someone. I can sit with the bereaved and you say, I don't know what to say. Literally don't say anything. Just sit there and just try to be a comfort to them. Can I get something for you? And let them initiate conversations but help alleviate the pain and carry the burden of others. Number two, not only is the merciful feel compelled and jump into people's lives to lessen their burden. But number two, mercy resists being judgmental. Did you think of that? What did you think of when you heard Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy? What do you think of? Blessed are the merciful. I want to propose to you secondly this morning, mercy, the merciful person resists being And I said I would go back to the Matthew text. Watch this progression because the order matters. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God, I have nothing. I'm absolutely bankrupt. I have no spiritual resources. And that causes them to beg the Lord for Christ's righteousness. I'm empty spiritually. And then blessed are those that mourn. They not only see their emptiness and their poverty spiritually, they see their sin that causes this poverty, and they let that lead them not to take it lightly, but they mourn over their sin. They repent over their sin. That's the blessed person. And then as that person goes out into society and their relationships, they don't intimidate and manipulate and crush people because they've seen behind the curtain. They know what kind of person they are. They don't need to crush people, so they line their will up under God's will. But then something happens, this void, this emptiness, this bankruptcy creates a hunger. That's what hunger is. Hey, my stomach feels empty. I want some food. I need some water. I feel empty of liquids. I need some drink. This person that's the Beatitudes that Christ describing step by step, they feel so empty and void that they start craving righteousness. I've got to have it. I don't have any. I'm asking God for Christ's righteousness. But then they say, I want more of you, Lord. And they start hating sin. And this person is blessed because God promises they will be satisfied. So if when, you, when a Christian really starts desiring righteousness and desiring more of the Lord, God says, I will give you more of me. Now, that's a wonderful place. Listen, this is key. That's a great place to be, but that's a dangerous place to be because here's what's going to happen. You're going to start growing in holiness. You're going to start growing in righteousness. And if you're not careful, you and I, as we start growing in the Lord because we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we felt so desperate, we pray for it, crave it, we start choosing him over other things, and all of a sudden, God starts making us more like Christ. Here's the danger. It's wonderful, but here's the danger. You can turn arrogant and prideful. And start looking at other people that are not where you are. And you start looking at people who were where you used to be. And you have a judgmental attitude. If we're not careful. If we don't intentionally remember our poverty apart from Christ. So the Lord, he's getting all the credit. He's growing you in holiness. You have to remember me without him is still abject poverty. And if you don't remember that dynamic. Then you're going to find yourself being judgmental toward other people. It's very important. In fact some christians even seem to project this idea it's almost like you want to ask them do you think that your censorious judgment of other people is a virtue and sometimes i think they do and sometimes they think it's pleasing to god i'll tell you where the, the haven of this you say where's a haven of this attitude first year bible college They're eat up with it. Why? Because I've been in first year Bible college and second year Bible college. And and we're against everything that's moving. It's sin and we're going to preach against it and speak against it. And we're just firing on all cylinders. And then you get a little older in the Lord. And you're not quite that way toward people. It's not a virtue. I think of your dog. You let your dog go out to go to the bathroom. Five minutes later, he comes back. He's found a dead animal. He brings the carcass, and you can kind of sense the way he's wagging his tail, and he drops it, and he's kind of standing over. And he honestly thinks, you're pleased with what I found, and you're thinking, no, that's disgusting what you found. And I think that's the way the Lord is with some people. Like, look how hard a line I'm taking against sin. And God's going, your attitude disgusts me because you're forgetting, this is important, this is not popular, but you're forgetting that at this moment you deserve to be in hell if it wasn't for the mercy of God towards you. It is only by the mercy of God that all of us are not in hell right now. It's the last song we sung. And man, we start growing in the Lord a little bit and we start firing down at everybody else. So I've got to ask you, only, only think of yourself. Don't think of the person beside you or don't think of the person at home that really needs to hear this sermon today. Don't think of them. Check yourself. Do you take a hard line with people? Do you take a hard line with people? When you hear of a brother or sister in Christ who gets caught in sin, honestly, what's your attitude? Confession. Depends on which friend. If I really like them, I go much lighter on them. If I don't know them that well or I don't like them, then what are they? Careful. What's our heart's attitude? Do you, when you hear this, start pronouncing judgment externally? Or do you say, oh, I would never do that. Do you internally start thinking judgment on them because they got caught in something that maybe you're not tempted by that? Or you find out a brother or sister in Christ has a besetting sin that still tempts them and they're still fighting with that. And maybe it isn't yours. What is your heart's attitude? I want to challenge you and I because we're going to find this out. It's happening all the time all around us. When we hear this, what is our heart's thought? Is it judgment? Is it censorious judgment? Or is your heart, can you say honestly, Jeff, as I grow in the Lord more and more, here's my thought. I feel sorry for him. My thought is when I hear that, well, I have my own sins. Is your thought, Lord, it is literally only by your grace that I've not done something far worse than what that. You say, Jeff, I thought we were talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, it's possible. Much is possible. Much is happening. You're going to hear it in the future. I pray you never hear it of me, but I am not immune to this. What will be your response if you hear that of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or someone comes and confides in you and says, Listen, I am really struggling with this. <gasps> really? And start firing down at them. i got to ask you. Not just brother and sister in Christ. What is your heart's attitude toward the sinner that you live across the street from or that you work beside or that's in your family? the lost person, do you pity them? Do you honestly pity them? Because I want to encourage you, please remember where they live. You say, well, they live over on Main Street or Church Church Avenue. No, no, no. They live in sin. That's their address. They always live in sin. They can never live anywhere other than in sin. You don't live in sin. Christians cannot, Christians can commit sin, but you can't just wallow and live in sin. The Holy Spirit in you keeps you from doing that. They live in sin. Guys, please understand this. As it is, the lost person, it doesn't end well for them. They are literally on their way to hell, and most of them have no clue that that that's where they're headed. If something doesn't change, they're on their way to hell. What is your attitude toward this person? Is it pity and compassion and mercy or is it you say I kind of catch myself getting angry and hateful toward the lost person I'm going to tell you where I finally reached And by the way the degree will change what I'm about to say or the volume will change what I'm about to say but for the most part I expect unbelievers to sin I just expect it Jeff did you hear about that that person did I expect it now again sometimes it's like that much that degree, wow, that's, man, what's wrong, you know, with our world and this country? But for the most part, I just expect people to sin. They say, Jeff, so you don't struggle with, with being merciful. No, I struggle. I'm getting ready to tell you where I struggle. Two main groups. Here's my struggle. If I'm not careful, I catch myself being judgmental toward Christians who are judgmental. Seriously. And you you, you got the point. You You chuckled. How foolish is this? I can get judgmental toward Christians who are judgmental. That's messed up. Now, I realize there is this thing called righteous indignation. And I know where Jesus, the majority, and we're going to get to it eventually in Matthew. So there is a healthy level of that. But sometimes I can take it to an unhealthy level and I can let it go overnight, which is... The wrong thing to do, but if, if I struggle, and it's usually not lost people. Again, I expect them. Do you hear about sinners that sin? Yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> do you hear about the humans that breathe air? Yeah, that's what we do. Sinners sin. Humans breathe air. But when Christians are ju- judgmental toward other people, it's like I'm, I'm gonna get on them. Here's a second group: is immature Christians who should be way further down the road. In their seeing the truths of God, accepting the truths of God, but they're still stunted in their growth. And here's what kind of, i got to fight. I'm learning this, that Jeff, tone it down. I'm going to give you the reasons why I need to tone it down in a moment. But here's, here's a scenario. Here's a brand new Christian. I mean brand new. I mean like a few months old, right? So I'm not talking about new Christians when I say, boy, I tend to get frustrated with immature Christians. I'm not talking about new Christians, few months old, year two, two, two and a half, three years old. Here's the dynamic that kind of frustrates so you have a new Christian, literally watch, a year old in the Lord. And over here's someone who's 10, 20, no kidding, 30 years old. Their testimony is they got saved 30 years ago. I can actually name this. Unfortunately, I am standing here today with examples in my mind of a one-year-old Christian and a 30, supposed 30-year-old Christian in the Lord. And the one-year-old Christian has gone after the Lord and spent time in the Word. They already get the major points of truths of the Word of God way more than the supposed 30-year-old Christian. And I'm like, what is that all about? And I want to tell this person, when are you going to start spending time in the Lord? When are you going to start reading the Word? When are you going to stop thinking humanly? When are you going to start letting God be God? This person's one year old in the Lord, and they passed you already. But I shouldn't get so excited on that. Why? Because there's four things I need to remember. Because some of you are sitting there going, yes, Jeff, that, that's me. I am that way. Here's four things I have to remember about this person. I don't know their past. And number two, it's basically the same. I don't know what made them that way. Jeff, something made them that way. Something is making. What were they taught in their formative years? I wasn't there. What was? So, there's, there's these pillars in their belief system that have yet to be crumbled by the word of God. And so they're still kind of in place and we hope they're crumbling. But it's like, what? But I don't know what happened in their formative years. I don't know what they were taught. I don't know what they saw exemplified in front of them. I don't know what makes them the way they are. Now here's the third thing and this is more important. I got to remember this. It is only by God's grace and mercy that I have whatever light that I have, it's a gift from Him. Which leads to the fourth thing there's a lot of other Christians who have a lot more light than I do, and I probably frustrate them. Jeff of 2019 would get extremely frustrated with Jeff of 1995, who started teaching Bible classes in the Christian school. If me today could go back and sit in those classes, I'd probably be like, "Uh, yeah, you're wrong. You need to not say that again. Hey, kids, don't scrap what he said. Don't, Don't. But we grow, and so we need to be patient and merciful. What about the unbeliever? Before I lead to the third point, would you write this down? Unbelievers do not need our condemnation. It's not ours to give. Unbelievers don't need your condemnation. They don't need mine. By the way, it can come across in our words. It can come across in our attitude. Are our words or our attitude, our stance, our countenance, our tone, our expressions, are they condemning to the lost person? They don't need our condemnation. Guys, even Jesus, when he came to the earth, did not come to condemn. He specifically said, I did not come to condemn you. Could you imagine if Jesus came? Hey, what did you come for? To tell you you're on your way to hell. Hey, you, you're on your way. Come here. You're on your way to hell. I just want that's why I came. And then he goes back to heaven. We were already condemned. They're already condemned. They don't need, what I'm saying is, my opinion of their sin and your opinion of their sin does not matter at all. But there is one who has spoken and they are under his condemnation. So you say, got it, Jeff. I got it. We don't need to talk to lost people about their sin. We just need to be merciful. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't hear what I didn't say. Let's balance The unbeliever doesn't need our condemnation. But they also don't need our fake mercy. We hear a lot about fake news. Here's fake mercy. Fake mercy ignores people's sin. And because it ignores people's sin, it leaves them in their sin. People don't need fake mercy. See, Jeffy, you're kind of confusing me. Are we supposed to talk to them about their sin or not? Yes, it's about our tone. It's about our attitude. We must help the lost person. Now, really take this to heart. We need to help the lost person to deal with their sin by confronting their sin mercifully and by agreeing with them that you have those same sins in your past or in your life currently and that you struggle with those. Don't avoid the Ten Commandments. Go to the Ten Commandments with the lost person. Walk them through that. And as you do, say, have you ever done that? I have... Loved other things more than the Lord. I've taken the Lord's name in vain. I have dishonored my father and my mother. I have had anger towards people, Jesus teaching on on murder. I've had lustful thoughts. I've told lies. I've coveted things that are not mine to have from God. Have you ever done? Well, yes, yes. And then tell them how serious of an offense that is. They don't need our condemnation. They need merciful help in dealing with their sins and ultimately mercifully leading them to faith in Christ. It's the most merciful thing. We can do. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They help carry other people's burdens. They really resist being judgmental. It's not theirs to give. But number three, mercy grants genuine forgiveness when wronged. Mercy grants genuine forgiveness. If you have your Bible, would you go back with me? Exodus chapter 34. This is important. Exodus chapter 34. Would you go there? I know it will be on the screen. Exodus 34. The scenario here is the following. Moses has gone up on the mountain to ratify the commandments and the covenant with God. To tell God that Israel as a nation is signing on. You're going to be our God. We're going to be your people. We're going to obey your laws. Moses no sooner gets up on the mountain, but the nation of Israel is dancing naked around a golden calf that they've made, an idol, so they're having an orgy, and idolatry. Moses hears about it from God. Moses breaks the tablets of the commandments. God says, I'm not going with you guys anymore. I should destroy them. 3,000 of them end up being killed. And then God, I'm, I'm really compacting here, God tells Moses, you take them onto the promised land. I'll send an angel with you. I'm not going lest I would consume these people. These people, I'll I'll wipe them out if I walk with you. And Moses pleads on behalf of Israel. And ultimately Moses said, God, you said I have found favor in your sight. You said these people have found favor in your sight. You've told me your name. You told me that you're the I am God. But now I want to know more than your name. And I want more than our face-to-face conversations that we have in the tent." I want to know your ways, chapter 33, verse number 13. God, would you show me your ways? And God says, here's the deal. You come up tomorrow, bring two new tablets. I'll meet with you. And then I'll reveal. Now, Moses, here's the conditions. You can't see me and live. You can't learn about me and live. So there's going to be a cleft, an open, a split place in the rock. I'm going to put you behind the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to go by backwards so that you see the back of me. So it's just a reflection. But I'll let you know a little bit more about me. So what you're about to read is what God says in answer to Moses saying, could you show me your ways? I need to know more. Would you show me? This is what God says about himself. Verse number 5. This is key. This is so massive. This is such a key text. All Scripture's inspired. All of it's profitable. But this is such an important text. This, this concept is repeated a few times through Scripture. Verse 5. Moses goes up, has the tablets. Verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud. And stood with him there and proclaimed. So the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord, the I am God. Yahweh, the I am God, the covenant-making God. He starts proclaiming his name. And now God's going to tell about himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here he goes. This is God talking about himself. You want to know my ways? Here it is, Moses. The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Not love. Steadfast love means it's tested and proven. It could be withheld. Could be revoked. You've blown it. No. He says, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, meaning thousands of generations. And then the next verse, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And sin. Notice those three. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, meaning debts that people owe, I forgive debts. And God says, when I draw the line, sometimes people fall over the line. I forgive that. And sometimes when God draws the line, people stomp on the line and just jump over the line. And God says, I forgive iniquity and trespasses and sins. You want to know what I'm like? But notice how he finishes. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I remember several times, probably two or three times over the last couple of years on Wednesday nights where, I, where we've had group activities. Small table activities and then we make it a big group activity. Write down, get your table, you guys have paper, start writing out the attributes of God. And then we'd put them all together and we'd get 25, 30 attributes. I mean, like three minutes firing them off. Check, one, I have my master list. Yep, oh, y'all even added one I didn't have. Like 30 attributes of God. Here's my point. Mercy is at the very core of God's being. Mercy is at the core. God, would you tell us your ways? Would you explain yourself? God is a holy God. Nothing ever replaces that. And God is a God of justice. But what he's saying is, I love. it's the first thing out of his mouth. I love mercy. I prefer mercy. I am a God of holiness, and I'm a God of justice. Justice will not be compromised. But I want to give people mercy. In fact, God gives mercy to all people who ask him to give mercy. Everyone who asks in faith, they always get mercy. And so on the basis of that, I want to propose to you, As I think of Matthew 5, 7, I believe Jesus' primary meaning is the following. Christ's primary meaning of merciful is when one person has offended another person. So let me say it again. Christ's primary meaning of mercy has to do with when one person has been offended by another person. And here's, I'm throwing this in, but I believe this is important. And then the offended person ends up getting the position of power over the offender. So tables get turned. This person hurts this one. But then it's turned, and then the offended ends up with the power over the offender. So here's here's what Christ is hitting at. What will you do when you've been offended, and then you're given the power over the offender? What will you do? Because here's what you can do. You can drop the hammer. That's justice. They've earned it. They started it. They did that. Up to the degree of what they did to you, you can drop the hammer of justice. And by the way, we live in a society where our coworkers and our supposed friends and our neighbors are all saying this. Get them back. Get even. Make her pay. You make him pay for what he did. And that's what's being projected to us all the time. We see it in the political parties. Happens all the time. This political party's in power, and this one over here, filibusters. Stalls, delays, tries to buy time. This one says the people have elected us for these mandates and this agenda, and you're supposed to get in line. Here's the problem. Two years later, when a new election comes around, this party's now in power. And so, what does this party do? They start filibustering and delaying, and each accuses the others of playing politics. Well, you started it. You didn't confirm our Supreme Court justice. We're not going to confirm. And it's almost like party is up here and country is down here. Get even, get even. And then here comes Christ Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. <clears throat> Notice what the New Testament calls us to do. Ephesians chapter 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So Christians tune in we can quench the holy spirit he's calling us to do something we don't do it but here we grieve the holy spirit by having things in us and doing things that grieves him so paul tells the ephesians do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption literally we're placed in the holy spirit he seals us and we also know the holy spirit comes inside of us so he's in us we're in him It's the spirit of Christ. Christ says the Father's in him and he's in the Father. Christ is in us through his Holy Spirit. We're in the Holy Spirit. Christ says you're in my hands. By the way, we're in the Father's hands. There's a lot of interaction, a lot of intertwining here. Verse 31. On that basis, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Malice wants the person to pay. So what does Jesus, what, what does Paul call for? Be kind to one another, tender hearted. That's our idea right there. Tender hearted, be kind, tender hearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you. And so the world around us is saying, get even, pay them back, avenge yourself, get revenge. Christ comes along and says to his followers, When you're offended and then it's turned and you have the position of power, use your power to do what they didn't do. What did they not do? They were not kind. Now it's turned. You have every right. You can drop the hammer. You can bring justice. You started it. You've earned it. I'm going to do this to you. Fine. Or Jesus is actually calling us. Don't do that. Don't do what your friends and neighbors and coworkers are telling you to do. Don't do what the country is exemplifying. Be different. Turn the tables. Use the power to be kind. The opposite of what they did. Recently, I've been reading about Saul and David. Familiar with that? King Saul blows it. Sins against God. Rebels against God. Incomplete in his obedience. Finally, God has enough of it. And God says, you're you're no longer going to be the king. And he takes the kingship away from Saul, though Saul keeps on living and keeps being king for a little bit longer. Privately, the prophet Samuel anoints David, a young man with a heart after God. All David did was get anointed. He didn't ask for this. He gets chosen. He knows he's the future king. David does not go out and have a meeting with Saul and, like, you need to leave the throne. God's, God's favor's on me. All he does is he starts he serves his father, and he continue, he now starts serving Saul. And so Saul starts getting these evil spirits that cause depression to come on him. David plays instruments. It picks up Saul's spirit. This happens more than once. Then there's this big giant that nobody wants to fight. David goes down and fights the giant and kills him. Makes everybody look good. Helps the Israelites win the victory. Saul's all in his favor. This is great. Until some women start singing, Saul has has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten Why anybody says such stupid things, I don't know. That's so dumb. Don't do that, even if it's true. So all of a sudden, this jealous spirit, long story. David finds himself playing again for the king. He's in such a bad mood. Saul grabs his javelin and tries to sling it at David. David moves. It hits the wall. He's trying to pin him against the wall. That happens twice. Saul realizes what what is going on in David's life. And David has the blessing. And this is the guy that's going to take my place. And Saul gets an army and he goes out and he hunts David on more than one occasion. I mean, just hunting for him. But you remember what happened. David and his men are hiding in a cave. And just to be blunt, Saul has to go to the bathroom. And so Saul's army's out there. David and his men are hiding in this cave. Saul goes into the cave to use the bathroom. And David's friends, actually some of them are some bad guys. God's put the king in your hand. Now's your chance. And he could have killed him in the moment. And I don't want to think even through too many details, but somehow he goes up while he's using the bathroom and he cuts part of his robe off, and I don't even know what's going on. And he let Saul go free. He had him right there. He had the power. You've been delivered right here in front of me. I'm surrounded by the... We could kill you in just a moment. You've tried to kill me twice with a javelin. You're trying to hunt me down, but he doesn't. And then on another occasion, Saul is chasing after him, and God causes a deep sleep to come on Saul's army. And David and another man goes right into the army, right up to Saul. And there's Saul's spear. All all David has to do is take it and just kill him in the moment. You're trying to kill me? I'm the rightful king. I've been waiting on God to do it. I'm going to do it. But he doesn't. He's merciful. Joseph gets sold into slavery. An older brother has to talk the other brothers out of killing him. Let's just sell him into slavery. So they don't kill him, sell him into slavery. And you know the tables get turned. He ends up the second most powerful man in the world. Here comes his brothers, not knowing who he is, bowing before him, begging for some food. And he has every right to say, take these guys out. These are my brothers. Take them out. Kill them. But he doesn't. He uses his power to do them good. The greatest example of all is the most powerful person in the universe. We sinned against him really foolishly. We sin against God, but notice what Romans 5, very famous verse. Look at Romans 5. We'll have it on the screen. Romans 5, verse 8. You talk about when justice was called for, but mercy comes to the rescue. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Literally, we're sinning against God. He's called the almighty God, the omnipotent, all power. You're talking about he has the power. What does he do with it? Justice is called for. Justice is deserved. But God says, I have the power. Justice is called. The need is mercy. What they really need is a savior. I have the power. I will become that savior. And he turns the table. God is merciful to us. One other passage I want you to look at. So go back to Matthew. We're in 5. Flip quickly to chapter 6. Matthew 6. And I'm not going to exhaust this because we've talked about it in the past. And in a few months, we'll be there again. And if you're saying, Jeff, this is only chapter 6. What do you mean a few months? Well, I've looked ahead at the passages. Seriously, it's... It's going to take us a few months to get there. But eventually we're going to get to the Lord's model prayer. Maybe you've heard it as the Lord's prayer. I'm not going to read it all, but there's these six petitions. Look at number five. Watch number five. Jesus says to his disciples, here's how you should pray. And watch. And forgive us. We're praying to God. And forgive us our debts as... We forgive as we also have forgiven our debtors. Would you want God to answer that request this morning? Because the merciful person is a person who grants forgiveness when they've been wronged. And when that person asks for it. And that's when the power turns. When this person lines themselves under you. And they're asking for forgiveness. And they're repenting of their sin. And now you have the power. What are you going to do? Jesus says, here's how we're supposed to pray. Would you not only hallow your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you give us our daily bread and our daily needs? But number five, would you forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins against you, as we also forgive our debtors? Number five, and then the sixth one, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Six requests in this prayer, and yet the one that Jesus feels like he has to go back and readdress, is the fifth one. Notice what he says. This is confusing and convicting. Read this in light of chapter 5-7. For if you forgive others their trespasses, when you're in the position of power, and you could bring justice, but you literally show mercy and give forgiveness. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So guys, I've read this. I'm not going into it all. I have much more to say to this. We'll get on to it later. But at first reading, when I read Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy. Here's how it comes across. It seems causal. Doesn't it seem causal? You you get merciful, you be merciful, I'll be merciful to you. Oh, so my being merciful causes you to be merciful. And then he comes along and says, if you forgive other people their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive other people their trespasses, I'm not forgiving you. Oh, so I'm kind of earning your forgiveness by forgiving other people. I think there is a level of causalness to this. But let me tell you, I promise you, it is not the following. Matthew 5, 7, and Matthew 6, 14, and 15 do not mean that when we forgive other people their trespasses and sins against us, we thereby are earning God's forgiveness of our trespasses. I know that is not true. You say, then what does it mean? I think that's God's way of saying, I don't owe mercy to anyone, but I'm going to tell you the kind of people I do bless and the kind of people that I show mercy to. It's those who are showing mercy to other people. You don't come to God and say, please forgive me of all my sins. But by the way, I'm going to hold on to this one little sin over here of unforgiveness. God's like, no, I don't play games. Do you want your sins forgiven or not? Then you need to be a forgiving person. I forgive these kinds of people. Jesus ties God's forgiveness of our sins to our forgiveness of other sins. Mercy cannot be earned. This is, so, this is such a simple sentence but it needs said mercy cannot be earned but look God I'm forgiving them I'm earning no mercy cannot be earned or it's not mercy at that point it becomes a payment at that point it's what I've I'm owed you owe me no God never owes mercy is always a gift So as I come down the home stretch I offer the following Cuz I hope you're tracking I hope in the first point you thought, you know what, Lord, use me to help lessen people's loads. Lord, help me to be less judgmental toward sinners or toward frustrating Christians or immature Christians. Lord, help me to realize I'm often those things. Help me not be so judgmental. But as we're looking at this one, I think this really is the main one. I'm supposed to be forgiving people when they trespass and sin against me and quick to do it and do it genuinely. But I guarantee you someone's hearing this and thinking, Jeff, you don't know what they've done. I can't do it. I wish I could. But what was done against me was so severe. It was too hurtful. I can't forgive them. So what do you say to me? Here's what I would say. You're right. You're right. There are extreme cases that you can't forgive. You can't forgive. You don't have a chance. It was too much. Maybe that event, that action was such a huge action. Or maybe it was several things. Or maybe it was several things for a long time. Months. Years. You can't. I'm with you. You don't have a chance. You may choke out the words, I forgive you, but you will not mean it from the heart like Matthew 18 says it's supposed to be. You say, okay, great, Jeff, you just made my point. No, I'm not done. Here is the only hope we have. This takes us back to the message on meekness. So, Jeff, if I can't do it, then can it be done? Yes. How? Listen. Regular, repeated, sustained, not quick, sustained times with God will help you. He'll start drawing you in. You hunger and thirst for righteousness? You go after him, you repent of your sins, you go after him, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Seek the Lord, make him your delight. He'll give you the desires of your heart. He starts drawing you in, have regular, repeated, sustained times with God. All of a sudden, listen, this is key, You'll start seeing more and more of God. And the more you see of God, the more you will see of yourself. And the more you see of yourself, it takes you back to the first beatitude. Apart from Christ, left to myself, I am empty. I am depraved. I have no righteousness of my own. I am spiritually bankrupt. It will cause you to see your sins more. It will cause you to mourn over your sins. You'll recognize yours more than what others have done against you, even if it is great You'll see, yes, look how great a sin they've done against me. But you'll realize more and more how much you've done against the Lord. And it'll cause you to take your mission, your agenda, and lay it up under God's. And all of a sudden, you'll find yourself seeing my sins against the Lord are far greater than their sins against me. And it will enable you to forgive. I promise. That's the only chance you have. Two thoughts. I'm going to use two different words so it's subtle. God's mercy inspires us. So listen, God's mercy inspires us to be merciful. I'll say it this way. The more aware we are of God's undeserved loving kindness toward us, the more likely we will be to forgive those who sin against us. And so I would say the opposite of that is true also. If we find ourselves being unable to forgive, it's because we're less aware of God's undeserved loving kindness toward us. But the more we're aware of it, it inspires us to be forgiving of other people. Number two, here's the other thought. God's grace, I just changed words, God's grace enables us. So God's mercy inspires us, but God's grace enables us. Part of the meaning of the word grace means gift. It literally, we read it in Romans 12. It's a spiritual enablement. God gives us an ability to do things that we never could do on our own. And so when we go to the Lord and confess, I am not able to forgive this person. And we start seeing him and then we see ourselves and we're asking for this spiritual enablement. God really will give his children the spiritual grace and enablement to forbear and to forgive other people literally from the heart. So much so that your next to the last note is this. So Jeff, this our forgiveness of other people and then God will forgive our sins, what's part of that dynamic? I believe part of that is this next note. Our mercy toward other people proves that we really have received God's mercy toward us. When I'm able to forgive what they've done against me, that's a sign, an indication that I've really received his forgiveness because I've seen how great my sin If I can't do that, then you have to wonder, hold on, did you receive great forgiveness and you can't forgive from the heart lesser? But it's big. I know it's big, but it's not near what we've done against God. This is far worse what we've done. And then our last note. I don't know if this is a good thought or not. It's kind of confusing. I'll throw it out. The greater the offense, the greater the need for mercy. Greater the offense, you need, here's the offense, need this much mercy. But the greater the offense, the greater the need for mercy. The more mercy extended, the more glory to God. So I I think of that, and I think that is true. If it takes more mercy, then that gives more glory to God because I couldn't do it had to be him, his enablement. That takes us to this last thought. So that means great sin. We're not saying go out and commit great sins or desire great sins to be committed against us. But great sin is actually an occasion for great forgiveness and thus great glory to God for enabling such great offenses to be forgiven. Literally what we're saying is, I couldn't do that. But God has done something in my life. I am literally able to... Grant forgiveness from my heart and mean it. I couldn't. I tried. I prayed to the Lord. He showed me him. I saw me. Next thing you know, I am forgiving. How many times? Again and again and again. This text and others like it are why some people say what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, he's talking about the millennial kingdom. He's not talking about 2019. This is impossible. Hey, I agree. It is impossible. Are you jumping into people's lives? Because we're naturally selfish. We're naturally judgmental to anyone who's below us. And when we get offended, our natural reaction is, I'm gonna get revenge and I'm gonna make you pay. I'm not giving you a clean slate. And along comes Christ and says, don't be selfish. Help them carry the load. Don't be judgmental. It's only my grace that you are where you are and I have plans for them. Help them. If someone's offended you, Forgive them from the heart, being inspired by my mercy towards you. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Three questions, and then I'll pray. Who do you need to lighten their load and their burden? Who do you need to lighten their load? Ask the Lord. Maybe someone literally is already in your mind. I know of someone who's struggling emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually. And God, by His grace, has given me some of the resources that they need. And and God, by Your grace, I'm going to jump into their life this week and help bring some relief. If that is you, speak to the Lord. If you're saying, Jeff, no one literally is coming to my mind, then ask the Lord even now. God. Would you help me to be sensitive to when you put that person in my path and then help me to be obedient and truly merciful and truly compassionate and sympathetic and step into their life in a real way? It may or may not be my spiritual gift, but let me do it cheerfully and with joy, being thankful and knowing that you see it all and it'll be rewarded. That's the kind of person you give mercy to. And then ask yourself, I want to ask the Lord. You say, Jeff, by God's grace, no one comes to my mind. Praise the Lord. But others of you, I want to ask, is there a lost person you have really found yourself being judgmental toward? Or is there a Christian, a specific Christian or a group? It could be a denomination. what plan on saying that? Is there a denomination of people? Is there a church? A specific person? And you catch yourself being judgmental of them. Maybe for their sin. or Maybe for their judgmentalism. Or their immaturity. And you need to remember, you don't know the whole story on them. You don't know their background. It's God's grace that's revealed what light you have. And others have a lot more light than we do. And then lastly, this one would be specific. And hopefully not many of us, but is there anyone comes to your mind very clearly that the Lord is like you have a root of bitterness against this person because they started it they did something wrong, it was massive and up until now when they've asked for forgiveness you've either withheld it or you choked out a lie that you've forgiven and you really haven't and do you right now as you sit there do you need to say God I can't do it said the words but I know I don't mean it not like you forgive me of my sin I've not granted that level of release of the debt so Lord I'm asking you right now toward that specific person would you change my heart and let me be found to be merciful I want the good life that brings the most glory to you Father would you speak to us would you speak through us let grace View be the most merciful church in Anderson County. Let us have the best life. Free hearts. Light. With no bitterness, clamor, slander, malice. Let us be quick to forgive. Slow to judge. Quick to help carry the burden. We know you keep your promises. Thank you for even making this promise. You didn't know it to us. or well, most of all, thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Savior. In His name we pray.